Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 144. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, thank you, Lord, for bringing us together and for keeping us safe across the distance. We know that you are um, raising us up in uh, these uh, last and evil days, and you're preparing our hearts to receive your son when he returns. We know, Lord, that your precious Holy Spirit is going with us. He's strengthening us. He's teaching us. He's guiding us. He's encouraging us. He's helping us to continue to uh, build one another up in the Messiah so that we can be better equipped as a body of Messiah, both here and abroad, in, in our local countries, in the countries uh, uh, that we've been uh, assigned to. Um, I know just for this particular live internet study, we represent people from at least three different countries, um, if not more, if I'm mistaken. But thank you, Lord, that um, you're reaching out to us, even though we're separated across the miles. Nevertheless, we are uh, brought together by your precious Holy Spirit. And we just want to continue to pray for one another and to um, encourage one another to, to keep the race, to keep running strong, to keep pressing in, to keep studying the scriptures, um, to keep our, our, um, our hearts focused on you so that we can be um, a children and be ambassadors of the living God. Uh, we want to be witnesses for your great name. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us uh, from the pandemic, from, the, um, from the, the sickness all around us, and from just the many dangers that we might encounter. We pray that you'll uh, give us a voice of clarity, of sanity, of, 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 um, of inspiration for those around us who would, would listen to the, 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 our witness, our, our gospel message, as we reach out to them with the good news. Um, continue to um, uh, help me to be focused on doing the work that you've called me to do as a Bible teacher, um, to, uh, to share that which you're laying on my heart with the students. I pray that they'll be blessed and edified. And above all, Lord, I pray that you will be glorified for all the lives that are changed. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua Omein. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. This is the Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, which is Kehila Dunuvah, 
in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. Like you can see on my screen right now, we are meeting in person as well as online. If you go to my website or our, my home congregation website, you can look at the um, sermons that Pastor Mark uploads to YouTube. Right now, he's still in the five types of spiritual leaders in Messiah's community, pastors and teachers, going through that sermon series there. We pray that you'll be encouraged by that particular set. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at www.tetzetorah.com. Let me spell that out for you. It's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. As you can see on the screen right now, there are lots of resources that I make available for you there. Just click on anything there. Most of it opens up to websites, like web teachings. Um, but these days, I've been quite busy turning a lot of my commentaries into either uh, audio teachings or YouTube uh, commentaries as well. Speaking of YouTube teachings, why don't you find me over on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetzator Ministries. I'd love to have you visit my um, YouTube channel. Take a look around and see what you like. I've got lots of commentaries available there. If you click on the videos tab, you can... Um, uh, take a look at all the videos that I upload and see that I'm quite busy. I upload something uh, basically every day. So there's five things I'd like you to do if you hit my YouTube channel, and this will kind of keep you in the loop. Number one, subscribe so that you become part of the family. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications so that you know when I'm uploading new content. Number three, hit the little thumbs up that shows that you like the content that I'm um, uh, uh, uploading. That really helps me out as well. Number four, um, leave comments and tell me what you like, what you don't like. Tell me what questions you have. Tell me your own thoughts and uh, insights to the text. Let's share together. Let's let's um, um, gain together in the knowledge and the sharing of God's word together. And then lastly, there's usually a little icon that lets you share the content to like social media friends and family members. That would also be great too if you hit that little share button. Okay. These are the live internet studies, and I bring them to you every week. Let me just give you some of the logistics in case you're interested. This is episode number 144, as I mentioned earlier. Give me a moment. There we go. Uh, episode number 144. The meeting date is uh, June 28th, 2021 for the USA date. Um, we meet each Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So no matter where you're at in the world, if you want to set your clock against the Central Time in America, you'll be sure to be able to meet with us. Each hour-long um, study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. We have the first segment one, Romans 14 Unplugged. Feast and fast and food, oh my. We're in part 60 tonight. We're jumping right back into my own study. We're finished with that kind of excursus material that we've been going through for the last uh, about month or two. And then for segment two, we'll be continuing through the Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 77. And we're going through some review of the first two papers uh, before we jump into paper three, which is going to be talking about the uh, the role and presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got a YouTube video lined up tonight as well, a uh, feature YouTube video from my uh, SQSA live series, my short question, short answer series. And the, the uh, question we're going to look at tonight is, are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? This is a little bit longer video. I think it's like 10 minutes long. So we'll watch that video near the end of my uh, study. And as always, um, 
If these uh, studies are something you're interested in joining, we meet via Skype. As you can see on my screen right now, there's a big blue Skype logo. And if you're interested in joining, just click on that blue Skype logo. And if you're using a desktop or a laptop computer, it'll just take you right to the Skype class. Nothing else is needed there. Just try to make it as easy as possible. In the past, I used to tell you, you have to email me if you want to get the Skype link. But these days, I, I think we're okay. You can just click on the Skype link and everything will be fine. Um, and if you don't have a Skype account or a Skype app installed on a computer, again, uh, this should do all the work. It should load, you, load up in your browser. Otherwise, if you have a mobile device like a, a smartphone or iPad or something like that, I think you probably need some extra software, Skype app, and maybe even a Skype account. But hey, those are all free, so what's the big deal? Might as well join. And then if you're on my website, scroll all the way to the bottom to that black footer section where you see the Hebrew writing there. And if the Lord is laying it on your heart to bless me in financial ways, this is the way you can do it. You click on the little yellow donate button, and you can donate via PayPal or uh, securely with a credit card or something like that. And um, uh, I would be blessed if, if uh, you decide to share what you've got with me. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's jump right into the Romans 14 study. This is Romans 14 Unplugged. Feast and fast and food, oh my. We're working our way down through a commentary that is available on my website at tatesatora.com. And we've worked our way really kind of around. Uh, it's not been the most orderly study, and I apologize uh, for the disorder of the study. But basically, we're in the introduction and background, uh, the background and historical audience section. And uh, we kind of worked our way through this section that I put together after the study. We're working our way to the... Um, as I'm scrolling down on the page, we're working our way to the conclusions. And we read some of the conclusions way back in March, way before the Passover season. And then we took a break from the Romans 14 study for the Passover season. And then when we came out of the Passover season, um, we went through some excursus material with uh, Dr. David Stern, with um, uh, Tim Haig. And now we're basically ready to jump back into the conclusions. So, But before we do that, um, let's just look real quick at the, the kind of the gist of the study. I wanted to read Romans 14 itself. Uh, the passage. Uh, maybe I'll do that next week. Um, we'll see. But if you look at the study, let me see, is this the one? Yeah, okay. All right. Let me um, uh, scroll down past the conclusion for a split second and show you the scope and the style of the study in case you're um, not familiar where we're going. This, like I said, it's been a few months and even I get lost in my own studies as to where we're at. All right. And I'm the one who wrote it. Um, basically, what we're looking at is only chapter 14, but we're taking a, um, a broader look at the book as a whole, and we're taking special notice of the situation that occasioned Paul to write it, who were his recipients, what was the uh, social situation there, the religious, socio-religious situation, the setting behind the letter, uh, how can we appreciate from today's 21st century perspective, how can we appreciate what the uh, early 1st century Jews and Gentiles had to go through, and um, uh, you know what kind of practical application can we make? Uh, you know That was like 2,000 years ago, what they went through. Uh, we're certainly not going through the same thing in our uh, local communities today, but Nevertheless, we still have some of the same 
dynamics, uh, Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, we still, of course, lay claim to faith in Yeshua. And so um, uh, what do we make of this particular letter? If we are to believe that the Holy Spirit has preserved the text so that it is to be a source of um, teaching for our communities in today's 21st century church communities, uh, Jewish communities, um, if we are to believe that Jesus is still the Messiah of both Jew and Gentile, then we need to try our best to make some sense of what Paul has left for us. So, um, like I said, I wanted to read uh, Romans 14, but um, um, I'm going to forego that, um, at least for now. I'll wait maybe another week or two weeks when we're done reading down through the um, conclusionary section, and then we'll read through Romans 14 itself, the whole chapter, and... Um, so that we can jump into the study. But for now, uh, let me give you the overview of where my study is going. If you look on my uh, screen right now, basically, uh, I took the chapter 14 and I broke it up into these bullet points. And so let me just tell you the bullet points in advance uh, that we're looking at, and then we'll scroll back up and read through some of the conclusionary statements. We're going to be looking at who are the weak in faith. Right out of the gate, Paul addresses these two groups of people, the weak in faith that he names in 14 verse 1, and then the strong in faith that he names in 15 verse 1, 2, and 3, somewhere around there. So at the beginning of chapter 14, he talks about the weak in faith, and then in 15 verse 1 and 2 and 3, he talks about we who are strong in faith. So there are these two groups, and how does it bear relevance to us today? Do we still have the weak in faith around? Maybe we do, depending on what uh, how you had identify the weak in faith. And, but from Paul's perspective, perhaps there's a group that we don't readily identify with today, but Paul identified with, and is it important enough for us to um, uh, identify this people group so we can figure out how the letter makes sense to the recipients and what the takeaway is? What was Paul trying to convey to them? Number two, we looked at verses two through four we're going to be looking at eventually. Uh, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables? Paul launches into this discussion about um, table fellowship and um, uh, certain things you can eat and certain things you can't eat, and or perhaps maybe everything is edible. You know, um, he talks about these two groups again: the weak in faith and the strong in faith, and and their scruples and their tendencies to um, judge one another based on what one person chooses to to engage in eating or when to eat, things like that. Remember, the study is called Feast, Fast, and Food. Oh my! So there is a lot of discussion around the table fellowship of the first century and how we can make some practical applications for our 21st century table fellowships as well. Indeed, if you just read the chapter, and we're going to do this again, like I said, either next week or the week after, and notice how often Paul uses some terminology related to either food or eating or something like that, you'll notice that it is a dominant theme in this particular chapter, and we'll get to that uh, pretty soon. The second, uh, or the third bullet point group covers verses 5 through 9, uh, and the question I asked was, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? We um, had this discussion already about, is this a Saturday versus Sunday debate? right? Like in today's circles, it's very popular to have these questions tossed around. Do we as Christians have to keep the seventh-day Sabbath? Or does the New Testament give us license and freedom to choose any day of the week, uh, which would include Sunday or whatever as our day of worship? Are we still rigidly tied down to the seventh-day Sabbath? That becomes a topic of discussion in Christian circles 
and uh, we came to some semi-conclusions in our own study, and we'll again re revisit those uh, uh, in time. Uh, the next bullet point, which covers verses 10 through 13, uh, focused on um, the terminology that Paul uses in this letter, brother. Who are the brothers? Um, we looked at there's uh, the immediate context of the Christian brothers, the Jews and Gentiles, within the scope of Paul's letter and Paul's writing. Uh, there would be brother Christians to Paul. But at the same time, we also recognize that Paul addresses brother Jews from time to time throughout his letters. He does in Romans as well. He refers to his fellow Israelites as brothers. But at the same time, there are um, places in the Bible, in fact, all throughout the Tanakh, we're going to find that Israelite, whether they're Christian or not, whether they believe in Jesus or not, are known as the brotherhood of Israel, or the brotherhood of Jewish people. And how would Paul want his brother Christians, particularly his Gentile Christians, how would he want them to relate, if at all, to the brother Jewish people, the brother Israelites, is there still a relationship there? Is there what I'm trying to say, kind of a smaller context for this use of brother and a larger context of this use of brother? And how does that bear relevance for us today? How can we interact with Paul's writings and still have this appreciation, not just for the brotherhood of Christianity, but how do we as the church relate to Israel? In fact, in the um, video uh, that we're going to watch near the end of our study, we're going to look at that topic directly. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Um, I hope you can stick around towards the end of the study for that particular video. In the next bullet point, we looked at, uh, which covered verses 14 through 18, and we haven't really gotten to this yet. We will get to it. That we're going to jump back into the food uh, topics. What exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? When Paul says that nothing is unclean in itself, is he really trying to convey the idea that the dietary laws of the Torah are no longer really binding us on us as Gentile Christians? It's no longer relevant for us to make a distinction between, say, pork and shellfish and and ham versus say chicken and turkey and and other kinds of uh, fish you know like salmon or something or you know everything's on the table <laughs> pun intended everything everything is acceptable nothing's unclean in itself i mean is paul really just trying to tell us you know don't worry about it just eat whatever's set in front of you don't raise any questions hey, i mean he talks that way in other letters i mean really what's he trying to say we'll look at that in time uh, we also are going to be looking at in verse 19 where Paul says, how can we make, this is my own question, how can we make for peace and mutual building? When we've got uh, different differences of opinion of, you know, what's acceptable for eating and what worship day should we worship on and who is the church and who's Israel and, and is the Torah relevant and, you know, what do we make of prophecies that talk about um, the Torah being established in our hearts, you know, um, what about prophecies of, of a temple being rebuilt in the millennium and we've got all of these, uh, these kind of heated topics that are so easy to divide us as Jews and Gentiles. How can we make for peace and mutual building? How can we come together as 
churchgoers as Christians who, if we have all these diverse opinions about, you know, I mean, I haven't even hit on some of the other topics that we hear about in church circles, you know, speaking in tongues and who's got the Holy Spirit and the identity of God, you know, is he one, is he three, like we talked about in my Shema study. You know, Paul says we need to make for peace and mutual building, but how is it even possible if we've got so many differences? We're going to talk about that when we get to that particular verse. As we move on into the questions that I provided in verses 20 and 21, I created a question that says, what does everything is indeed clean mean? That's going to be, a, again, a look at the um, the dietary issues, but it'll be a little bit more expansive this time because he talks about everything is indeed clean. This would this would kind of broaden the, the scope of even including um, ritual purities when it comes to maybe... Um, uh, touching things that are unclean. How about uh, touching a corpse? Do we still have corpse defilement today? You know. How about attending a funeral? Um, how about going to see one's loved ones when they're about to die and they're in the hospital? What if they die while you're there? I mean, does that suddenly render you unclean? Um, how about menstrual periods of women? I mean, in the Torah, that rendered you unclean. How about today? Does that still work? I mean, everything a woman touched when she was menstruating was rendered unclean in the Torah. How about today? I mean, does that mean suddenly you need to avoid men if you're, you need to avoid women if they're menstruating? I mean, wh- how would you even know, right? You know, this could be a sensitive topic. So we'll talk about that in time as well. What does everything indeed is clean talk about? And then the last bullet point that I have in my uh, list there is uh, the topic of or the question of how do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? In verses 22 and 23, Paul admonishes the people, the faith that you have, keep it between yourselves. I mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. Are you trying to say I shouldn't witness to people about my faith? I mean, that can't be what he means there, right? Um, Well, if he doesn't mean keeping the faith of Yeshua to yourself, what exactly does he mean? I mean... If I have a particular perspective on food and 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 the Torah and you know holy days and and clean and unclean, should I keep that to myself or should I share that with someone else? You know, we'll talk about those and those questions in time as well. So that's basically the overview of my study. Uh, let's turn back up to the. Um, conclusions and read some of this information. I'll just read it verbatim. I don't think I need to stop and explain it um, since it's fairly self-explanatory, okay? So we're going to start right there uh, on my page, on my screen right right now where it says in, and let me just read down through um, some of this, okay? Um, In my study that I wrote, in the conclusion section, I say that in the end, the exact amount of Jewish and Christian social, religious, and communal involvement in ancient Rome, it may actually remain a mystery until we're all able to one day have a long-awaited conversation with Priscilla and Aquila. And I put the word smile there. You remember Priscilla and Aquila were some of Paul's um, uh, fellow Jewish believers there in Rome. And um, we also know that during this time when Romans was written, like around the mid-50s of the first century, um, there was some... Uh, some activity that heavily impacted the Jewish community, uh, particularly as we're going to read here, there was an expulsion order that was sent out by Emperor Claudius a, a little bit earlier than this time, and it impacted enough of the Jewish people that it disrupted social life. How many Jewish people were expelled from Rome? 
History doesn't give us an exact answer. There are some indications in the book of Acts itself that perhaps maybe even all of the Jews were expelled from Rome in a very short amount of time. I tend to think that that um, account in the book of Acts is a little kind of overstatement, oversimplification. I'm not doubting the fact that the event did take place, but since there are no details given in the book of Acts by uh, Luke, the author, and since we don't have other historical writers um, you know, like Josephus and other uh, writers, Suetonius, that confirm the exact details of the expulsion, then we can also assume that perhaps maybe it, there were a, a, a significant amount that were expelled, or perhaps maybe it was just a concentrated amount of troublemakers that were put out. Either way, it did impact the Jewish community uh, right around the time of uh, or after of Paul's writing. And uh, But Priscilla and Aquila would have been impacted. They would have probably been put out as Messianic Jews, and then they would have been allowed to return after Emperor Claudius had... Uh, passed on, and uh, Nero had taken uh, power there. I go to say on my commentary, um, but until that time, right, until we can figure that out, as Bible students and as historians, we can, in fact, gain a more well-rounded approximation of the situation by doing our due diligence today when it comes to historical research, right, both Christian as well as secular research. And I do recommend that when you're studying through any particular book of the Bible, try to give yourself a more broadly rounded perspective than just what you might uh, encounter if you were to read from any particular Christian book um, or Bible book uh, itself. From the Bible, obviously, is going to be your principal um, place to start study, but um, you got to broaden your research. Sometimes you got to go to the bookstore, the library, and uh, check out some history books and things like that and allow history to help fill in the gaps where the Bible doesn't always tell you details so that you can begin to um, not just appreciate, but begin to better understand and have a heart for uh, what's taking place in your Bible so that you can be better equipped to share that message with others. I say in my commentary, indeed, as a conclusion to this particular section on background and historical audience, Mark Nanos, remember he's our modern Jewish historian that we're borrowing our notes from, he is not a Messianic Jew as far as I can understand his uh, teachings. However, he is interested in Messianic and Christian teachings. He researches New Testament topics, and he does so with such precision that he becomes a valuable resource to those of us in Messianic circles, such as myself. I highly recommend reading through his commentaries, Mark Nanos, N-A-N-O-S. He's got a few books out there, and we're going to be quoting from some of them from time to time as we work our way through this particular uh, study. But he poses this timely and important question that I'm going to read here in a second with regards to properly appreciating the historical issues as they apply to Romans. So listen to this question real quick. This is Mark Nanos. He says, he asks this question, quote, would the Gentile Christians or the Christian Gentiles of Rome, would they have sought association with the synagogue as the, quote, righteous Gentiles, end quote? And if so, why? Why? There was a group of people in Paul's day that were regularly visiting the synagogues of their day. And these people were Gentiles who were interested in the God of Israel, the scriptures of Israel, the religion of Israel, the people of Israel, the teachings of Israel, the covenants of Israel. And as such, 
in their interest, they frequented the synagogue and they were welcomed into the synagogue circles. Uh, and many of them went on to become proselytes. Many of them went on to become uh, full-blown uh, Jewish converts. But there was an important group of people who who didn't take on conversion, but nevertheless respected the, the scriptures of Israel, the God of Israel, and they for all intents and purposes, took on the religion of Israel, so they practiced Judaism, but they didn't go the full step of conversion and become ethnic Jews, or, or um, legally recognized Jews. And these were known as righteous Gentiles, uh, God-fearers. Uh, um, uh, you remember, you recall, uh, what's his name, um, the Roman centurion in the book of Acts chapter 10, um, Cornelius, that met with Peter. He would have been a righteous Gentile in the eyes of Jewish people, meaning a, a Gentile who has not made conversion, but nevertheless respects Judaism as religion, uh, claims monotheistic um, worship of Israel's one God, um, studies Israel's scriptures, um, and seeks to be uh, pleasing to God as a Gentile. What type of lifestyle and behavior would this Gentile have engaged in? So Nanos asks the question, would the Gentiles in Paul's purview, in, his, in the scope of Paul's writings, would they have been familiar with the righteous Gentile model? And if so, would, they, would the Gentiles in Paul's uh, uh, letter, the recipients of Paul's letter, would they have been continuing to reach out to the Jewish synagogue uh, to identify with them as a people group? Um, would they have continued to associate with him? I go on to say that I imagine his answer might surprise some. And in his book, The Mystery of Romans, which we're going to look at, he makes these particular um, uh, sentiments. And so let's read just a little bit from uh, Mark Nanos. Let me see how much I want to read here. Maybe maybe we'll look at just the first paragraph, and then we'll pick this up next week. I don't want to spend too long here. We've got a, a more material that we need to cover. Oops, didn't mean to do that. There we go. All right. This is Mark Nanos in his, from his book, um, The Mystery of Romans, which I have sitting on my bookshelf here. It was put out back in the 80s, I believe, mid-80s, I believe, of this year, of this century, of this era, not, not, um, not like the 1800s or anything like that, so it's, I think around 1980. Um, and uh, it's available, I think, Fortress Press. If I look, yeah, Fortress Press. I'll, I'll put a little screenshot on my screen in post-production so you can see what it looks like. It's a black book with red writing. Here's what uh, Mark Nanos has to say. Uh, speaking of those um, uh, religious Jews and uh, particularly those righteous Gentiles or Gentile Christians in Paul's day, Josephus indicated that Julius Caesar's decree forbid the assembly of foreign religious societies other than Jewish ones in the city of Rome. And according to Suetonius, Caesar had dissolved all guilds except those of ancient foundation. So right away, Mark Nanos, who is an historian, um, reminds us of, in Paul's day, it wasn't so easy to just simply start up a new religion, meet together, and go on your merry way without Rome getting involved in your business. All right, There were rules that forbade the assembly of other religions other than the Roman um, uh, sanctioned ones. And the, one of the reasons was because it's no secret that the ancient Caesars considered themselves to be living gods among the people. And as such, they commanded 
uh, state worship, and it was mandatory to um, bring a, a, a certain amount of um, tribute to the Caesars as living gods. And as such, if you engaged in other religions other than the ones that the state had sanctioned, then it was considered a form of um, not just heresy, but it was considered a, of, of a bit of kind of sedition and um, uh, treason. And so you had to be very careful in, in ancient Rome of the first century. Uh, you didn't want to lose your head over your choice to follow another religion other than the state-sanctioned um, uh, Roman religions. So... Um, where did Christianity fit in with all that? Well, it wasn't the state religion just yet, at least not in Paul's day. It wouldn't be until after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and even later on in the first century and moving into the um, early second century, that we begin to see, um, uh, and maybe even lar farther along than that, well, second century, third century, right? We, you guys have heard of... Um, of, of, of um, Gosh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he was the uh, Roman ruler who eventually converted to Christianity, and his name starts with a C, Constantine, there we go. And he eventually accepted Christianity as a state-sanctioned religion. But before then, Christianity found its identity nested within one of the forms of Judaism. Even the New Testament attests to this fact that Christianity was a subset of Judaisms. Of one of the Judaisms was a sect of Judaism known as the Way, followers of the Way, the Nazarenes, whatever names you want to give them. They were using the name Christian here and there. We know that from the New Testament as well. But the point I'm trying to make that Nanos is trying to highlight is that there were no openly acceptable religions that were broadly re recognized by Rome. And thus, as, as Mark Nano says, how would Christians outside association with the synagogues obtain the right to congregate for fellowship and worship even in their own homes or in their tenement rooms, right? Unless, unless, he says, they petition for designation as a quote-unquote private club. So this is important for us to begin to um, consider as we're uh, working our way through historically the background to Paul's letter. How would the Jewish Christians have been able to openly and freely worship its Christians and enjoy the freedoms and the benefits of of um, of uh, without being persecuted, you know, worshiping their God. Remember, the Judaisms had already received an exemption to, to a degree from Rome. Um, it came with its taxation, of course. Later on, we're going to read about and learn about uh, the what we call the Fiscus, Fiscus Judaicus, which was a, a, a tax that Rome levied against uh, religious Jews and Jewish people in general if they wanted to continue having a measured amount of freedom to worship the way they want to, bringing sacrifices to their temple, um, not having to pay uh, taxes to Caesar, I'm sorry, pay pay a special kind of um, worship rights to Caesar. In other words, they were, the Judaisms of Paul's day were able to enjoy a, a measured amount of exemption from the state uh, uh, emperor worship, the mandatory emperor worship, uh, because of their monotheistic beliefs in the one God, right, for them as Jews, as religious Jews, to give allegiance to Caesar as a God would be idolatry, right? It's idolatrous to recognize any other god other than 
um, Hashem as the one true God. And so how were they exempted? Well, Rome said in a word, fine, we'll exempt you from having to worship Caesar as a God, but you do have to send some prayers up to your God on Caesar's behalf, pray for him, right? And you're going to have to pay a little bit more than Roman citizens would pay or non-Roman uh, uh, worshipers would pay. Uh, in other words, you're going to pay for your freedoms. So that's what we're talking about. This is where it becomes important for us to ask the questions about how would Christianity fit in to this whole social, uh, religious, social religious setting. Were they exempt? Uh, probably not. But wait a minute, if the Christianities were assumed to be a subset, a sect of Judaism, right? Remember, Judaism had many different denominations going on in the first century as well. We already know about at least two of them, or two or three, that we read about in history and in the New Testament. We've got the Sadducees as one sect of Judaism. We've got the Pharisees as another sect. And we know at least about the sect of the Essenes, right? The people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, that's another third sect. But now we also had the Messianics, the um, the Christians. That's, this would have been another sect, right? The sect of the way. So at least four. Um, there's there's perhaps more, and we know there's more from reading through history. But they were all sects of Judaism, which means Rome would have lumped them all together under the designations as Judaism, and therefore they would have find, found their exemptions under that umbrella um, identity, identity as uh, Jews, So, um, even though they were Christians. So let's keep reading. I say, or, or this is uh, Mark Nados, not only do we have, do I'm sorry, not only do we not have any evidence of such an effort, right, Christians trying to make a break from their Jewish association so they can uh, launch out on their own. We don't have any evidence of such an effort in history, uh, but we also have good reason to believe that they did not speak Speaking of the Gentile Christians, they did not pursue such a course as they found the authority of the synagogue sufficient, and they probably did not even consider the question at all at the time. Why would they seek to distance themselves from the synagogue, right? That just wouldn't come into their perspective like it does today. Your average Gentile Christian church doesn't have any association with the modern synagogue of today. Rabbinic Jews have their own religion and their own beliefs and their own perspectives on God. And Gentile Christianity with its different forms, you know, Protestantism, Catholicism, um, uh, Orthodoxy, and all the other forms of Christianity, they have their own separate and distinct perspectives on God, the Bible, who they are as a people group. So keep this in mind. Keep your antennas raised when we get to, for instance, my video at the end of the study tonight, where we ask the question, are Israel and the church the same thing? We have to ask these questions because we all have one Bible. Yeah, that's the, that's the kicker. The Jewish people and the Christians, for the most part, we use the same Bible. Most of it's the same, although Christianity has the latter third that's different and distinct from rabbinic Judaism. That's true. So we're going to keep talking about this topic over and over again. Uh, Mark Nattos continues, Further, even if these Christians... Uh, sought and were granted the rights of assembly of a private club, this would not have extended to the free practice of their religion without harm or interference, e.g. they would still not have had the right to observe the Sabbath. They would not have been uh, free from serving in civic cults, like I talked about earlier, nor to the right to refrain from, as I mentioned, the mandatory practice of declaring Caesar as their God. Remember, Jews were exempt from this practice 
only by the institution of a special substitutionary sacrifice. We talked about this. It's because of this uh, substitutionary sacrifice, right? The Jewish people were um, basically... They weren't sacrificing to the emperor. They weren't recognizing him as a god, but they were bringing in this extra sacrifice that the Torah had not prescribed, and this substitutionary sacrifice was in, was in essence saying to the emperor, we're going to pray to God on your behalf and ask our God to continue to bless you and protect you and to continue to establish your rulership and keep you safe, etc., etc. You know, And this sacrifice is going to be our way of recognizing your authority in Rome and for allowing us a measure of exemption from having to do some other things. But um, this is our way of, of recognizing your protection and uh, that we're praying for you as the ruler as Caesar, um, thank you for allowing us to worship uh, with the freedoms that we have, etc., etc. So that's kind of what's going on. I mean, that's not exactly what's going on, but but uh, does it mean that the Jewish people were um, uh, recognizing Caesar as a god? No, they weren't. So I mean, probably some were. You always have people in, in wherever you go that are just going to say, you know, let's just live and let live. You know, what's the big deal? You know, big deal. God's God. Caesar's God. You know, in my heart, I have my own beliefs. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, Mark Nanos concludes by talking about uh, the um, uh, Christians would not have been uh, exempted from the exclusion of mis uh, military service and other public responsibilities with their concomitant idolatry. So this is important for us to... Uh, to be familiar with as we're reading through Paul's letters because I'm just going to tell you right up front I don't think that the Gentile Christians in Paul's letters were completely separate and distinct from their Jewish synagogal counterparts I think they were still connected to one another reasonably so uh, to the point that Paul could expect the two groups to have some interaction with one another uh, particularly when we read through Romans chapters 9 through 11 in Paul's letter to Romans, we know that he admonishes the Gentile Christians to continue to recognize Israel's special place in God's economy, particularly in salvation history. Paul goes on to remind the Gentile Christians that God blinded national Israel so that he could extend his grace and mercy to the Gentiles who were these wild olive trees that was grafted into national Israel. So God um, established Israel as a people, and they blinded them in part, which allowed the Gentiles to come into the family group and to pick up their place in the family of Abraham as grafted in branches among Abraham's family enjoying that place because of their faith in Messiah, not because of conversion, not because of any special uh, 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 deeds that they had done as Gentiles. Far from it. It's because of God's mercy to them as the one God of Jews and Gentiles. And then it's within that scope of God's reaching out to the Gentiles in the, in the um, blindness of Israel that Paul admonishes the Gentile Christians to remember that they, the Gentile Christians, now have a responsibility to continue to reach out to these blinded, stumbling, disenfranchised national Israelites who don't yet accept who Yeshua is. I'm calling them the weak in faith 
just as Mark Nanos does as well, to reach out to them with the gospel and continue to to uh, try to bring them back into the place where, as Paul puts it, all of Israel shall be saved. I would say around Romans 11, 25, 26, 27, somewhere around there. Paul still has a heart for national Israel, and you Gentile Christians should as well. And that's going to do it for our look at the um, Romans 14, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. We'll pick up uh, this uh, study again in the second half of this quote from uh, Mark Nanos in my um, uh, uh, conclusion section next week. All right? Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And last week, we uh, begin working through some review. We might finish the review tonight. We might take two weeks or three weeks total to finish the review. We looked at the verse itself that the study is named after. You can see my screen right now. I've got the Hebrew pulled up. It says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Um, and then I've got some transliteration right there. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which the translation in the English right there says, Here, Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one. And what we learned last week is that the word Shema refers to listening with the intent to do, to obey, to to take action. But primarily what we learned uh, last week is that this word Echad, in Hero Israel, the word of God, the Lord is one. The word Echad, um, right? Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. The word Echad teaches us that God is the only God that we are to serve. He is the exclusive God. He's the one and only God of Israel. And therefore, Jews learn that God is one in contradistinction to there being multiple gods like they would have been exposed to in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt and out of that idolatrous environment to explain to them that far from what you've been taught, there is only one God, there's only one true God, and I am He. Hello, my name is God, right? And so God introduced Himself to the Jewish people, to Israel, as the one and only God. This is paramount for us as we study through our um, Trinity studies, that, and it's important that we affirm this as Christians, especially when we're having dialogues with skeptics, with Unitarians, with, um, uh, uh, say, people of other religions that can't quite wrap their head around the idea that there's one God, and yet there is three persons mentioned in our um, religious uh, confessions, right? You read through the uh, the creeds, and we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yet, how does this work out? All right, so God is the only God that we serve. To be sure, some translations render this verse in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That word, ahad, conveying the idea of alone. So what I say in my commentary is that this is the primary meaning conveyed by the use of this word, ahad, in this verse. It doesn't really, it's not really an ontological discussion. We're going to talk about that tonight. Ontology is this idea of, of studying from a scientific perspective what the makeup of something is, the composition, um, the sum of its parts. How do we interact with um, any particular object or being um, and relate to its, um, its, its, its parts? Is God made up of many different parts and we can put the, all the parts together and add them up? This is what we call an ontological discussion. Well, in this verse, 
when he says uh, Adonai Had, it's not really an ontological discussion on God's makeup. You know, God is one, as if he's made up of one um, thing and not made up of three things. It's not really what God was trying to convey. I believe primarily the historical uh, import that God was conveying when Moshe pinned the words Adonai Had was that there's one God. That's really the primary. So this is the primary meaning conveyed by the use of this word, Echad, that God is our only God, is paramount to correctly understanding any revelation of him in his word. So be careful when you're having dialogues as a Christian with skeptics and unbelievers and Unitarians, if you are a Trinitarian, make sure you let them know you do not worship multiple gods you only worship one God. And although Jesus is very God-veiled in flesh, and the Holy Spirit is equally God, it doesn't mean that there are three gods. I know, I know, we're going to talk about this tonight. So let's scroll down into this study, and again, look at some um, uh, review. This is review material. We're looking at this in my own commentary. Let's just pick up uh, some of the notes right here. What I say in my commentary is this. Do we believe in three gods? Speaking of we Christians who claim to be Trinitarians. I know there are Unitarian Christians out there. There are oneness uh, Christians out there, oneness Pentecostals. There are uni uh, Unitarian Christians uh, such as, and we're going to talk about Dr. Dale Tuggy from time to time here in the study since he's one of the more uh, widely recognized and well-versed Unitarian Christians that I've ever met and that many people would also recognize, right? He wrote the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia entries on uh, Trinity and we'll research, research some of that as well. But do we believe in three gods? Absolutely not. Um, that belief is called tritheism or tritheism. It's a heresy. There are not three gods. Do we believe in one god who simply swaps out or wears three different masks to interact with mankind? No. No and no and no. We don't believe in one god who's just swapping out masks. That, I say in my commentary, is the heresy called modalism. And in my uh, interaction with oneness theology, um, not universal uh, um, Unitarianism, but oneness theology in particular, um, I've come to understand in some circles that some forms of oneness theology, like the oneness Pentecostalism and some forms of that, they uh, really are teaching a form of modalism, where they talk about uh, Jesus being the single being that we encounter. Jesus is God, and God the Father is really just a mode of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is really just a manifestation of Jesus, the, the one and only God. And so I think they are kind of modern-day modalists, even though they wouldn't admit to it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there we have it. All right. Uh, what we... Uh, Trinitarian Orthodox Christians or Orthodox uh, Trinitarian Christians and I use the phrase Orthodox there not to say that we're not Catholic I'm using the word Orthodox in a small o just like I can use Catholic with a small c in the sense that the original Bible uh, teaching um, uh, Orthodox Christianity first century uh, Christianity when I say Orthodoxy that's what I mean by the phrase Orthodoxy I don't mean Greek Orthodoxy or anything like that um, what we believe in is one God who expresses himself in a unity of three, right? Uh, Dr. Uh, 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 Dr. Um, James White 
is fond of uh, uh, expressing it this way. We serve a God who is expressed as one what, but nevertheless three who's, right? Three who's. The mystery, when we're talking about the Trinity, is that each expression, each person, is uniquely God and yet uniquely single, right? Of course, we're going to cry foul when it comes to math, right? The math doesn't add up. Let's talk about ontology for a split second. Here's my definition. It's pulled from any standard dictionary. Ontology, as I talked about earlier, is defined as a branch of metaphysics that concerned itself concerns itself with the nature and relations of being a particular theory about the nature of being or the kinds of existence the ontological implications of the very words names and titles used in the scriptures help us to relate to god himself understand what i'm saying there so when we're talking about trying to understand god and trying to relate to him we first and foremost must allow the scriptures to give us the um, the data to work from. But when we're talking about ontology, then it becomes necessary to recognize that there are different names and titles. And in this discussion of ontology, when we're talking about Trinity, then we could begin to recognize that there's ontological aspects to the Trinity, but then there are also what um, theologians term economic aspects to the Trinity. So there's ontological Trinity and economic Trinity. Now, what do we mean by ontological and economic? Well, in my commentary, um, later on, we are going to uh, uh, look at those titles directly, ontological Trinity and economic Trinity. But for now, let me just um, give you kind of an overview of this idea of economic Trinity. So look at this. Here's what I say in my commentary. Observe. All of what the word God implies, right, capital G-O-D, is not exhausted in the use of the words His Son, and all of what the name Yeshua implies is not exhausted in the term the Father, and all of what the term Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, implies is not exhausted in the phrase the man Yeshua, and so on and so forth. So are you beginning to understand, you guys are familiar with this little um, Trinity shield, um, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And we got these labels between the terms God, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these um, connecting terms is between all of those labels, those person names. But at the same time, there's these other um, labels, and you can I'm going to put a little graphic on the screen here for those of you who can't follow along with what I'm saying. Um, there's these other uh, branches that are connecting these terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that say is not. And what we are beginning to understand is that God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And we can just keep going around and around in that discussion. But yet... The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So that's how we balance the ontology of God with the economy of God. The ontology deals with what God is and the nature of his being, and the economy it deals with the roles and functions that God plays, not just in the universe, but in humanity 
and uh, uh, so uh, that's where we begin to appreciate the um, the the uh, complexity of this God. So uh, let's keep reading my um, commentary. We'll start right there. We cannot cannot logically collapse each name, phrase, and title into the others without what? Doing damage to the import of the scriptural references. I go on to say, indeed, to attempt to do so is to approach the scriptures from an incorrect mindset. If we think that we've got to prove from the Bible that God is one and that there cannot be three persons, there cannot be an economy of persons who are working together, a functioning in humanity and through salvation history together, well then we're forcing God into our own model. We're forcing God into our own box. We're forcing him into a fit that he simply can't be forced into. I go on to say it this way. Historically, the Hebraists thought of God in concepts of this and that, right? So God is this, he's father, and he's that, he's son. Or he's father and he's spirit. He's God enthroned in heaven, and he is his spirit, who's very God, but yet can be sent from God to do certain things. Like we read about and say in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, the earth was unformed and void and darkness was upon the deep. And the what? The Spirit of God hovered upon the surface of the waters, or the face of the waters. Why is it that Moshe writes, the Spirit of God hovers? Why didn't Moshe just write, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God hovered over the surface of the waters? I mean, God is a spirit. Can't he hover over the surface of the waters? Yes, he can. But Moshe writes, the Spirit of God, right out of the gate, the Hebraists are beginning to recognize that God is complex. God, the Spirit hovers over the surface of the waters, and yet God created the heavens and the earth. What gives? Okay, so God is this, and God is that. And as I say in my notes, he can be two simultaneously, seemingly contradictory concepts at the same time, right? Case in point, he cannot be and has never been seen, according to John 1.18, 1 John 4.12, right? Go back and read these passages on your own. Go look them up. Look up John 1.18 and look up 1 John 4.12. John says without mistake, without confusion, that no man has seen God. No man can see God. He is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen. No one has ever seen God. And I say in my commentary, and yet, and yet, let me scroll up a bit there, and yet Moshe Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, right? Nadav and Avihu. And 70 of the elders of Israel, what happened? What happened in Exodus 24? They saw the God of Israel in Exodus chapter 24. Yeah, they saw him. And guess what? He had feet. Yeah, go figure. So wait a minute, John. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Aren't you forgetting about what Moshe, Moshe wrote in Exodus? How can you say so boldly in your books that no one has ever seen God? Obviously, John is contradicting Moshe, right? Right? No. Only on, on face value is Moshe and John in contradiction. Only at surface value. Only if we force God into a model, into a mode of our own making. But if we begin to understand that God is both this he's seen and that unseen. That's what I say in my commentary. God is both this seen and that unseen at the same time. 
at the same time. He is complex. Conversely, the historic Greek mind, right, we're comparing to the Hebraic mind, the historic Greek mindset from which Western thought also developed, right, Western Christianity, they approached God in concepts of this or that. Notice the contrast. God is this or that, i.e., I say in my notes, he cannot be two simultaneously seemingly contradictory concepts at the same time. And we got my case in point again. And uh, the case in point is this. Yeshua cannot be God because God is an eternal being while Yeshua was a finite human. So this is Greek thought. This is Western thought. This is not Hebraic thought, at least not ancient Hebraic thought. Maybe by today's Hebraic mindset with rabbinic Judaism and the onset of, of anti-missionary tactics, um, yeah, God can't be both things at the same time. But ancient Hebrews didn't seem to have a problem describing. I mean, the case in point was John writes that no one has seen God, and yet Moshe writes they saw the God of Israel. And they're both Hebrews, and yet they, they don't contradict one another. What is is they're recognizing the complex nature of God being at the same time seen and unseen, and they don't have a problem um, living with the um, tension created by something that seems to be pulling in two opposite directions. I think I'll put this little picture on my screen for you guys in post-production that shows these two guys having a tug-of-war with this rope trying to pull it in two different directions. What happens in that scenario? Well, there's no progress made, right? There's tension on the rope, and uh, neither person gets his way because both are pulling in two seeming opposite directions. And so what happens, I say in my commentary, is the tension created by affirming two seemingly contradictory concepts at the same time, like, uh, like the two guys pulling a rope in two opposite directions, a paradox, right, uh, is referred to by some scholars as Hebrew tension. So it's it creates tension on the rope if you have something going in two different directions. If God is both this, one direction, and that, the other direction, at the same time, there doesn't seem to be any progress. There's a stalemate. The rope doesn't go anywhere. The two people just exhaust themselves, and it seems like there's no progress. It um, it then became uh, the, uh, and I'm closing with this, it then began became the um, desire of the Greek model, the philosophical model, to instead of creating tension on the rope by pulling in two opposite directions to simply resolve the tension by solving the equation in either one direction or the other direction and giving up on one of them. So one person gives up their pull on the rope and simply gives in to the other person and therefore we end up with progress because the rope goes off in one direction, either left or right, depending on which uh, choice they made. And we call that progress in the Greek model, right? That's basically what we want in Western mindset as well. We don't like tension. We don't like Hebrew tension. We don't like a rope being pulled in two different directions. We don't like the paradox. Uh, it's contrary to our Western uh, way of thinking, of progress. We would rather solve the equation and simply go in one direction or the other. And so what the Western mindset has borrowed from the, uh, the the philosophical Greek mindset is simply resolving the tension of the issue of God by simply saying that he is fully God and nothing else, or he's fully man, when we talk about Yeshua, and nothing else. And that's basically um, uh, where the discussions are centered on today. And I think I'll stop right there in my um, uh, study right now with this particular topic of um, of the Hebrew tension. We'll, we'll continue looking at this 
Um, next week, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up our study. We'll work our way uh, into the um, paper two, and we'll um, uh, pick up our study next week. I'll just show you where we're going to start again. We'll pick up our study starting right here in this uh, paragraph. How can God be one and yet three at the same time? We'll continue talking about uh, this idea of um, the ontology of God, the... Uh, um, the um, uh, the economy of God, and specifically we'll begin to look at the um, the logical aspect of how can logically God be one and three? Isn't there a logical contradiction going on here? Yeah, we'll look at that next week. But that'll do it for exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy uh, as we bring begin to bring our study to a close, winding down in our study. We've got about 10 minutes left, and we've got to save some time for the video. The liturgy is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and I think I'll read all four verses um, this time. And I'm going to do something a little different. I'm just going to read the English tonight. I won't read the Hebrew, and then next week we'll just read the Hebrew and not the English uh, and so we'll do the same thing for both the uh, Hebrew and the Greek. We'll just read the English parts tonight, and the next week we'll read only the Hebrew and only the uh, the uh, Greek. But in the English, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, we're going to read down through 34. Uh, the writer says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, uh, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And then the final verse, verse 34 and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wonderful passages, and we've got to meditate on these particular verses, particularly as we pray for Israel and continue to keep her in our thoughts, because she hasn't been um, disobedient to the point that God has given up on her yet. Indeed, these passages speak corporately of a time when God is going to once again bring Israel to a place where she is going to contend with his son Yeshua and God's going to soften her heart and cause her to accept him. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. The passage we're going to look at is Galatians 3 verses 10 through verse um, uh, 14, I believe it is. Uh, is that where I want to read? And who are saying who is Christ? Yeah, I think it's verse uh, 14. Yeah, so 10 through 14. Uh, starting at verse 10 right there, Paul says, uh, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse that is written, everyone, uh, written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 13, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's quoting from Habakkuk there. Verse uh, 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Quoting from Leviticus. Uh, and verse uh, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, 
for it is written, cursed, uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, probably quoting from Deuteronomy. And so Paul keeps bolstering his argument by quoting from the Tanakh over and over again because he recognizes that that is where the anchor of truth for the New Testament is found. I've said this over and over again. If you want to understand your New Testament, then study your Old Testament. And if you want to understand your Old Testament, then study your New Testament. That's just the way it works. Verse 14, Paul continues, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, And I think that's where I want to stop with the uh, liturgy. So that'll do it for the liturgy for the, the both the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's turn now to the um, uh, short little video for tonight. And after we watch the video, then we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. If you ask your average Christian, who is Israel and who is the church, typically you'll find that they believe that the church and Israel are two separate entities. Question. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. Let's look at a short answer, right, uh, to this question. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Two questions. Two questions. Here's my answers. Short answer. All right. I'll answer the next. I'll answer the two questions head on, and then attempt to substantiate my answers from the text, from the Bible, of course. All right. First question says: Question: Are Israel and the Church the same thing? Answer: Well, yes and no. All right. Yes and no. Israel, in my opinion, exists on two levels. The two levels are national Israel and remnant Israel. And I'll, again, I'll explain all that a little later. But for now, in my short answer, I think that's how I approach the question. That's how I understand the text. The church actually exists, I go on to say, within remnant Israel. And remnant Israel itself exists within national Israel. Kind of Got a kind of a bit of, bit of a nesting going on. Right, One is within the other, which is within another. I'll flesh this out with verses below, so don't worry if you're a bit confused right now. Question, does God still have a plan for Israel? Absolutely. Absolutely. right. God still does have a plan for Israel. That's why we read the liturgy that we did in Romans chapter 11, which we're going to look at again here in a moment. Messiah is the head of remnant Israel. And even though national Israel doesn't have faith in Yeshua yet... Nevertheless, God the Father is still going to bring national Israel to her knees in repentance some day. Longer answers. Paul sets up the olive tree example in Romans 11, 11 through 24. Right? We read part of that passage in our liturgy tonight. Specifically in Romans eleven sixteen, he teaches that if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. Now, Who is the root in this passage? In my answer, I say that I take the olive tree to be the family of Israel and the root to be the patriarchs. 
the holy aspect where Paul says if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. So the holy aspect that Paul is teaching is Paul trying to explain the set-apartness of the patriarchs, right? They've been set apart by God from the rest of the world unto God. They've specifically been, as we know, singled out to be covenant recipients of the covenant promises that God spelled out to the man Abraham and his offspring. So if, in my opinion, if in fact Abraham is the nourishing root, in Paul's example, right, he's the exemplar, he's the, the prime example that we can learn from. That's what that word exemplar means. Uh, if he is the prime example of faith for all of his branches, meaning all of his offspring, both Jew and Gentile, but especially for the remnant who live among the other unsaved natural branches, and for the grafted in branches, these of course would be the Gentiles. I think it's helpful when we're describing this olive tree theology and how Israel and the church identify with one another. It's helpful to describe what's known as a Venn diagram. Venn, V like victory, E-N-N, Venn diagram. In case you don't know what that is, just picture the MasterCard logo, right? We got two circles that start to be um, overlapped one another as they intersect in the middle. So you take two circles, draw two circles, and push them towards one another, and don't completely put them on top of one another, just have them overlap in that middle section, that little slice there. Just like in the MasterCard logo, we've got a red circle on the left, and a kind of a, a mustard-colored circle on the right, and when you overlap them, that little orange slice in the middle, uh, that becomes the overlapping section. That's a Venn diagram. Um, using that analogy, we could put national Israel on the left side of that Venn diagram, that left circle, and on the right circle, we could draw, we could fill in the term um, Gentile nations. Gentile nations. So two nations are being described in my little Venn diagram. Left circle, Israel right circle, Gentile nations. And as we draw these two circles close to one another, that little section, that orange section in the middle where they overlap, that little section uh, known as remnant Israel, right, that slice in the middle, is a composite of people from national Israel who have placed their faith to Messiah. So notice they move from the outermost left edge into that center section. And it's also comprised or composed of people from the surrounding nations who have also placed their faith in Messiah and moved from the outermost right circle in towards that center section, the overlapping section. So they moved from the from the mustard colored section into the um, into the uh, the or, the orange section right there in the middle. So you guys picturing that in your mind there? Um, for those of you who are following along with me on YouTube, you're probably at this point in time looking at a graphic that I've uh, supplied in my post production process that I'm putting up on the screen that describes this. So um, that's what I'm picturing here. So that is my understanding of how we can uh, identify Israel, the nations, and remnant Israel. So in that answer, in that little description, who is the church? Well, it's easy. The church is actually remnant Israel. That's who the church is. The church is remnant Israel. The church is that slice right in the middle, that orange slice, that is a composite of those from national Israel who place their faith in Jesus and those from the nations who place their faith in Jesus. That's the church. The church is remnant Israel. And this is not replacement theology because remnant Israel doesn't replace national Israel. Nor is this supersessionism or uh, dispensationalism because remnant theology is still still identified within 
national Israel. In other words, they're still a part of national Israel. They're just a, a smaller segmented part of the circle known as Israel. When we answer this question, are Gentiles grafted into Israel? I hear some believers say, yes, we are grafted into Israel. Yes, Gentiles are grafted into Israel. Gentile believers are grafted into Israel. I hear other uh, Messianics teach no, or other Christians teach no, Gentile Christians are not grafted into Israel. Confusion is um, supplied by the fact that the word Israel needs to be understood on two different levels. If you use the term Israel to describe the national part, the unbelieving part, then it is true that Gentile Christians are not grafted into Israel because Gentile Christians are not joining national unbelieving Israel when they place their faith in Jesus. However, if when you say Gentile Christians are grafted into Israel, if in your mind you picture the word Israel as describing remnant Israel exclusively, then yes, it is true that Gentile Christians are grafted into Israel. And the second part of the question, does God still have a plan for Israel? Well, obviously, if your definition of Israel includes remnant Israel, then God, yes, definitely has a plan for remnant Israel. He's going to continue to strengthen her and to grow her and to swell her numbers and eventually take her to be to himself uh, when he returns at his second coming. But if, you're, if your definition of this term Israel refers to national unbelieving Israel, well then the answer is still yes, absolutely. God has a plan for national unbelieving Israel as well. Um, basically, on a natural level, on a national level, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 has not happened yet. It's still a future occurrence. So God, if he's still to be true, if his word can be trusted, then absolutely he is going to uh, do this. He's going to actually bring Israel to her knees in repentance, nationally speaking, and then they can profess faith in their Lord. Now, will it be every single Israelite? I don't think so, but that's a different discussion for a different day. The point I'm trying to make is that in this passage, this is a national uh, promise, a promise to national Israel. That's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, I encourage you to... Uh, uh, log on to uh, my YouTube channel and check out the other videos I have that I've made available to you. And while you're there, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't already done so. Just go ahead and click the subscribe button and, or on any one of the videos, if you hover, uh, if you click on the little, hover over the little, uh, my avatar over in the lower right corner, it will also allow you to subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel as well. And if you watch one of the videos and you like it, why don't you go ahead and give it a thumbs up as well. For those of you who are following this commentary on iTunes, uh, yes, I encourage you to also um, subscribe to my iTunes podcasts uh, where I park quite a few commentaries, biblical teachings, commentaries, more topics that uh, you can engage in to include uh, weekly tour portions. Uh, my Galatians uh, commentary is parked there. Uh, I have podcasts on the festivals, major and minor, as well as, again, each book of the Torah uh, has a commentary on each Torah portion as well. Okay? That'll do it for the little video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. 
Oh, I bless your name and thank you for the students. I thank you for the opportunity to share with them. I pray that you'll bless them where they're at, raise them up and strengthen them, continue to protect them and give them opportunities to grow in their faith, challenge them to press into the scriptures, uh, help them to continue to avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit. Um, staying with us all the while, Lord, while you're reminding us that you've got plans for us. We, we don't even know the scope of how you can use us until we just make ourselves available to the Master. Thank you, Lord, that you're partnering with us and that we have been given this unique opportunity to share in building up your kingdom here on earth. We pray that you'll continue to um, give us uh, the proper attitude to um, approach this this uh, this task which, which we've been giving. Help us to be sober-minded. Help us to be uh, diligent. Help us to continue to press in and uh, continue to pray for one another and support one another. Uh, raise us up and bring us back together next week. Lord willing, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.